Apparently, I'm like the SVP of Peacock, okay? It's going to be a, a one-hour-long, highlights-heavy show. Like, we need a guy who's done SportsCenter, who is not actually working at ESPN. That would be SVP Peacock would be a nice thing on your lower third. Drive My Car shows people devastated by loss, allowing time to ripen those wounds and distort their understanding of love and purpose. That's from Estelle Tang of BuzzFeed News. One of our feature reviews this week is Drive My Car. Might be the best reviewed movie of the year. Japanese film, almost three hours long, but rave reviews. That's one of our new films, along with Flea. Are you excited or what? Two foreign films? All right, let's go. And this film is a triple threat. I don't know if this has ever happened before the Academy Awards. Flea is both a documentary an animated film, and an international film, previously referred to as a foreign film. So could be a three-time nominee for documentary foreign film slash international feature, as they now call it, and animated. It's excellent as well. Uh, old School, No Country for Old Men, 15th anniversary of one of the Coen Brothers' best films. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, etc. Because of all the football this weekend, Heaven Can Wait, old football movie starring Warren Beatty, came out the year I was born, so we'll talk about that. But the real key is this, the wild card. W. Kamal Bell, we need to talk about Cosby. New documentary just released on Showtime. I watched all four hours. It is very powerful. It is very purposeful. And that is what we're going to start the show with. But first and foremost, Cody, how are we doing? Is Flea, or is the movie Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers? Is that what we're doing here? Is this like a documentary? <laughs> What's Flea? Right. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you today. I had to yeah. do some research and some digging on these movies. I don't know yeah. shit about them. Make me care about these movies. <laughs> Well, that was part of the goal as well. As I said to you, I'm like, okay, normally we go new movies, old movies, wildcard, which is the interview. And this week, I'm like, listen, I don't know how excited people are going to be for a movie from Denmark and a movie from Japan, with respect. So, you know what? We're going to lead with W. Kamal It's Kaj, a right? great this conversation, whole... honestly. Yeah. Kamal Bell is unbelievable. But before we get to that, I did have a little bit of personal news to pass along. I'm going to be covering the Olympics, which is really, really cool. Yes. It's a bucket list item for me. Uh, my first shift, today we're recording this on a Tuesday. Tomorrow is orientation at NBC, which is in Stanford, Connecticut. And then Friday is a rehearsal. Old school. Like we're doing a play. I'm rehearsing on Friday. Nice. And then Saturday's the first show. So you can catch out a show called Winter Gold, which I'm hosting. Apparently, I'm like the SVP of Peacock. Okay? It's <laughs> going to be a, a one-hour-long, highlights-heavy show. Like we need a guy who's done SportsCenter, who is not actually working at ESPN. That would be SVP Peacock would be a nice thing on your lower third. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to recommend that right now. Our, our boss, Dan Steer, is a former ESPN guy, so I think his sense of humor will play with us. SV Peacock. I'm out in Verk with Winter Gold. <laughs> Catch me on Peacock. It's 11 a.m. Eastern live. And starting this Saturday, it is 17 straight days because that's how long the Olympics is. I had a friend of mine go to me weekends as well. I'm like, what do you, what do you, think the, you think they take the weekends off? Again, oh. 17 straight days. I'm driving an hour from Hohokus, New Jersey to Connecticut, coming back. May hire a driver. I'm not, I'm not going to get Look into details. Look at you. About hiring a driver. I mean, what a boss move that would be. Because think about it. Cody, I got to be up at 545. I'm out the door at 6. You got to do I'm some research on the way, too. It, that, research. You can use that time driving to, like, actually, you know, work. Prep. Listen, I stole the idea from Mike Greenberg. Yeah. Greeny on Mike and Mike for years did it, and they just hired a driver. It was amazing. It yeah. changed his life. Yeah. He's like, oh, that hour, I'm just prepping, reading stuff, social media, whatever. He's ready to go. It does so. instantly make you slightly less likable, but I'll, uh, I will accept it because you need to get the work done. It's early, you know. Uh, do, how are we feeling pre-orientation pre, you know, tomorrow? Yeah. You got some, like, new job jitters here? Like, what are we feeling? 
I was about to say, Guillermo, put him in the poll. If a guy has a car service, douche or no douche? I'm curious to see how kind of reviews that's going to get. I'm pretty sure I know where that thing is trending. As I said to a friend of mine, he goes like, you know, Bob Costas gets a car service. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, what's not being said? You're no Bob Costas. I'm like, no, I got that. Bob's a man. We all know that. I wonder um, who the crappiest celebrity ever to have a car service is. I'm not saying it's you. I'm saying I'm yeah, just yeah. like wondering who that is. Like, I like if Stugatz had one, that would be pretty. If, I, I, I throw it out of my mouth. If you said to me Stugatz, it's a car service. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, I love Stugatz. <laughs> what the hell is he a car service? Because he's mobbed by fans. But are you nervous? Are you nervous? I'm a little nervous. Orientation I think is okay. I'm there for three hours, just you know, shake hands, kiss babies. I've been to NBC before just to meet some people, but um, yeah, I think Friday rehearsal. I, I love the fact we're rehearsing, and I'm normally a pretty lazy guy. Like I like to just come in yeah. and do the show. Like whenever we do this, we never do two takes, never do three takes. You edit things, but no, I just like to do it once. I hate doing things twice. Third time, forget it. In movies, as you know, it's ten takes, twelve yeah. takes. One of the biggest reasons why, along with a lack of talent, I could never be an actor. So for me, I'm like, I love the fact we're doing a rehearsal. Let's memorize the names. We meet at least 30 people, names, directors, producers, writers, okay? And then once we're going, the concern is this. It's the Winter Olympics. Like, it's not like we're doing baseball or hockey or football. Yeah. Like, these names. Yeah. Like, this guy said to me, he goes, listen, I'm sure you'll be great. I've seen your stuff. I know you're a talented guy doing highlights. But some of these names, these Russian names, woo! Have you started practicing? <laughs> I was looking at a few of them. Like, okay, we, 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 it's like driving and you feel the roadblock coming. Okay, which yeah. one could be a potential problem? But I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, what I did, though, because Valentine's Day is coming up, so I surprised my wife. I said, let's do Valentine's Day early. I took her to see Moulin Rouge the musical, mm. which is on Broadway. I said, winner of 10 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. And I'd never seen the movie, which, to be honest, I really wasn't keen on seeing. But I was like, let me see the movie so that way I know the musical better. I saw the movie Friday night. Saturday, we saw the musical. Sunday, I spent the entire day looking for my testicles. Like, I mean, I, I could not have been more neutered. Like, two hours of lovey-dovey musical Friday night. Saturday, wake up, and I got two more hours of this. I mean, thankfully, I don't know if you're the story. This, it's set in a brothel. So like, you know, at least we get some eye candy here. I'm paying you know, hundreds of dollars here. By the way, the other, the other issue is this. As, and Broadway, you, clearly you don't go. You're in Miami. But yeah. mask the whole time. So I was a little hungry. I'll get the babysitter set up with the kids. I show up. I'm like, all right. M&M's? Like, oh, no snacks, no concessions. Oh. 18 degrees in the streets of New York. That walk <laughs> afterwards, the wind just to get food. I'm like, oh, my. I just watched Moulin Rouge. Did someone just feed me a goddamn cheeseburger? Let's go. Oh, that's great. Any plans for you for Valentine's Day? Ah, Valentine's Day. I, I stink at holidays. I'm not romantic. I, I need advice. How do I be more romantic with my wife? I mean, don't I, I got that part covered. All right. <laughs> Talking about, you know, with gifts and dinners and... I was going to suggest an exotic massage, but maybe some oils <laughs> hey, or something. Maybe. baby! <laughs> we'll get into Cody's love life. But if you have any suggestions, please tweet us, at Pod. How can we give Chris some more advice, aside from spending a lot of money like I did, on going to see Moulin Rouge, the movie, and the musical? Let's, let's not waste any more time. We need to talk about Cosby. Bill Cosby, obviously one of the greatest comedians ever, and a horrific human being who raped and... Uh, drugged women for many, many years, was in prison, now out of prison. The Cosby Show at its peak, 65 million people used to watch it. That's out of a population of 225 in America. 25% of the population watched the show, loved the show, as did I, and then all of our minds were completely jolted and changed once you saw all the charges against him and all that Bill Cosby's done. We need to talk about Cosby. It's on Showtime, and like I said, it focuses not only on the comedy, his beginnings, his humanitarian efforts, the money he gave back to education, but also the fact he committed some horrible crimes and did so repeatedly and has shown no penance, no forgiveness whatsoever. Enough yapping out of me. W. Kamal Bell, here's our excellent guest. We need to talk about God.
We need to talk about Cosby. It is an exceptional new four-part documentary coming out on Showtime as of January 30th. It is powerful, it is provocative, and it's such a pleasure to bring in W. Kamal Bell, who is the uh, director of this and obviously a very talented guy. Kamal, congratulations, first off, on making a really important piece of work. Thank you. I got to be honest, it feels very strange to hear people say congratulations because it just feels like a thing that is hard to celebrate. You know, yeah. it's not... Uh, I, there's a part of me that wishes was an, it wishes it was a Marvel movie. It would be easier to talk about, but uh, thank you for saying that. What I particularly enjoyed, though, is you had that first-person aspect of it. Like, you were very invested in it just as a black man who loves good comedy, who grew up, as did I, on The Cosby Show and loved Bill Cosby himself and enjoyed what this guy was able to give. So I like the fact that you didn't, I wouldn't say inserted yourself unnecessarily, but did it in a first-person perspective. Like, hey, I'm struggling with this, with how to deal with Bill Cosby, because I find it difficult as well. So I, I think it's important that you had a perspective which a lot of other people could relate to. Yeah, I mean, and that was not the plan when we initially pitched this. I really was excited about the idea of doing something where I wasn't on camera and didn't have my voice in it. But because of, there were several reasons. One, uh, Many people who we asked who I thought would say yes, Bill Cosby was in prison when we started this. I thought like, oh, this story is over. He's gonna he's gonna basically spend the rest of his life in prison. I thought we can talk about this. And many and if I put the stack of no's next to the stack of yeses, more people said no than yes. So it became clear like, oh, I don't have the people I thought I was gonna have. And then COVID hit, and as we, I don't know if you know, COVID's been challenging on people's <laughs> lives and showbiz. I've and, heard and uh, yeah, if you, I don't know if you the news. So. So many things that we thought we were going to do. We're going to fly around the country. We're going to talk. We're going to talk to people. Oh, you, you, we don't want to give you COVID. So we're not going to come into you. We're not going to do that. Or you don't want to come out of your house. So understandably. So eventually at some point we showed a rough cut to Showtime and the executive there who's in charge of this, uh, Vinny Malotro, who I knew because he was part of how I got United Shades at CNN back in the day was like, Kamau, you need to be in this like because it was like it just felt like what's leading us through this if we don't have all these other things and i sort of came to the decision that he was right and so yeah i definitely was sensitive about not looking like it's not it's not roger and me it's not cosby and me you know what i mean it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a way bigger story than that but it's this but i have to be honest about the fact that it is my instinct to tell the story and because people know me from united shades I, there's a way that people will maybe listen to this differently if I'm sort of like, if they can feel me in it. Shout out to Michael Moore and Flint, Michigan. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think the real stars of this film are the survivors. And, and to your For point, sure. I'm glad this wasn't done over Zoom interviews. They're there in person um, mm -hmm. and they're telling these stories. Here's what I- But a lot, of those, a lot of those yeah. interviews, I was on Zoom. Yeah, I was okay, in you my, were on Zoom and they were there, okay. Yeah, so it's, it's just funny. It doesn't feel that way, but it was, yeah. Yeah, I, didn't feel, I felt like you guys, it was very intimate. You were right there with I, them, I felt it, like. It so. is amazing. And this is a shout out to the production like the on the ground production, like the people who get no love, the camera crew is that they set these things up where there's like laptops facing them. And like after, and you know, you feel like it's going to be weird, but it becomes intimate very quickly. And some of it, because those people, those women knew me from United Shades. So they felt like they came in knowing me. So yeah, at times they'll reference you, right? They'll say, Hey, come yeah. out. I need a sack. I'm not yep. sure if I can see this this way. And, yeah. and I like the fact you'll kind of have the behind the scenes stuff, people handing them iPads they're watching clips from the yeah. Cosby show. They're reacting. But a few stories really stood out to me. One, the woman who tells a story of her and her friend going to hang out with Cosby, and her friend is falling asleep, and she's not quite out of it yet. He's drugged both of them, and she sees Cosby literally leering at her friend, and she can't even be coherent. She's kind of like, like we got to get out of here kind of thing, trying to wrestle her friend. And instead, Cosby kind of turns his attention to her. And as she very mm -hmm. graphically and disturbingly describes, mm -hmm. he has oral sex with her and then bends her over, does her doggy style, like, okay, get out of here. And like, just, it just, just, just mm -hmm. discards her like such a carcass. And the fact that she said, until 
uh, Bowman came out years later. She goes, I thought like I was the only one. Like so many of these women mm-hmm. thought like, oh, I thought this was an isolated incident because so many thought, well, this mm-hmm. can't be the Bill Cosby we all know. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. the strength in numbers, once it was overwhelming, you know, just like from a, from a purely visual perspective, from a cinematic perspective, when you start showing year by year all the incidents happening. And then even later on, once Bowman comes out, right after Hannibal Burris's joke, literally the screen is like 60 boxes, mm-hmm, right? It was mm-hmm. like this month, then this month, then this month. I mean, that was insane the way that when you look back at not that very long ago, how one thread, the bravery mm-hmm. of a few people, all of a sudden just explodes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that that was the... I mean, I think that, the, the, you know, this film is about Bill Cosby in large part, but it's really a bigger, it's bigger than Bill Cosby. And I think the fact is, is like Bill Cosby can't get away with what I believe he got away with unless there is a culture of America that says, don't believe women when they say they've been sexually assaulted or raped. So that women feel like, so that if, then the women who do come forward feel like sometimes cops tell them not to press charges. Sometimes their friends and family tell them not to go forward. And the more, and that's if the guy is not even famous or Bill Cosby. And the more powerful that person is, the more likely they're told, you have to let this go. And what that does is it isolates you from the truth, which is like, this is a person who was doing this a lot and regularly. And so I think that that was something that Bill Cosby was able to use to his advantage is that he's, I think he, on some level, he understood these women aren't going to speak out. And it's so chilling the way that he uses power and, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the fact that so many of these women, here's my biggest takeaway, Kamal. I'm like, you know, it takes such courage for these women to come out because every single person is saying what they were saying, which is that they blame themselves. They go, mm-hmm. like, because they're literally drugged. You wake up and you go, where am I? Where are my clothes? Like, yeah. oh, my God, I'm so embarrassed. I must have got drunk. Oh, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I got yeah. drunk. But like, I, I threw up. Like, oh, my God, where are my clothes? I'm so sorry. I humiliated. Meantime, this guy raped you. Like, he literally yes. took advantage of you. And yet their first thought is, I'm so humiliated. I'm so embarrassed. I can't tell anybody about this. And the victim yeah. shaming is insane. The amount of yes. people will say, why were you there in the first place? Why yeah. did you go see Bill Cosby alone? Why did you accept mm-hmm. a drink from him? Like, you should have yeah. known better. Like, it's insane how, like, insidious that is a part of our culture. Yeah, and I think that like the you know Cosby and other predators weaponize that. They know that. They know that that's a part of our culture. So they know that you're not going to tell anybody, and if you do, nobody's going to believe you because Bill Cosby is more aware of who he, who who the world thinks Bill Cosby is than the rest of us are. And so I think that like, and the number of times that people talked about, I think Victoria Valentino, whose story you told about, who said that her friend she had she basically stopped him from assaulting her friend, and then she got assaulted. She was like, "How do I get home?" And she sort of was drunk and drugged and couldn't or drugged and said, "How do I get home?" And he pointed at the phone and she says, and I said, thank you. Like that is so like bred into us to be polite, even if we're under threat. And so to me, it's like about, this is why it's about structures and, and dismantling structures and going, we've done this all wrong. The same way that America has done race wrong, <laughs> which Bill Cosby's career was about trying to address and fix. We have done relationships between men and women wrong. And we have done dealing with sexual assault and, and rape wrong. And we've done helping people, women overall, feel safe to tell the truth when something bad happens. We've done that wrong. And a lot of that's with the criminal justice system and that the fact that like cops will talk women out of out of taking their cases forward because it's like because they don't because they want to believe the guy you know so it's like it is really an indictment of the whole system through the lens of Bill Cosby's career and it's amazing you point out a lot of interesting facts one 
all this is white people trying to take down our great famous black comic. This is racism. Mm -hmm. This is, and by the way, a lot of them are white women. So you can see how people would start to believe that not it's a white conspiracy trying to take mm -hmm. down. But Bill Cosby's a good dude. He's given twenty million dollars to Temple. He's an honest person. Yeah. Like this so is it's such, the Spellman. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. And yeah. all that kind of stuff. And you can sell how that that gets sold and how that narrative starts building. You just don't want to believe the truth because of what you've seen all these years. And I want to yeah. ask you about a specific clip. I love that you used it because I remember watching this live. Seinfeld was on Colbert, and Seinfeld loves Bill Cosby. And Colbert's yeah. like, oh, you have all his albums. He's like, oh, my God. And like, he's going through all the albums. And Colbert says something like, yeah, I can't listen to them now. And someone's like, really? Like, yeah. and, he, and so Colbert's like, no. And he's like, oh, like, I can't separate from what he's done. Because like, mm, someone's like, oh, not me. I remember watching it. It went to break. <laughs> and when it came back, I'm like, okay, either Colbert turned to Seinfeld and goes, Joe, you better clean this up. Either Seinfeld internally was like, I better clean this up. Or somebody there told Jerry, yeah, you better. Yeah. They came on a break. And the first thing Seinfeld says is, hey, I want to clarify. I wasn't really thinking. Now that I think yeah. about it, I can't separate yeah. that. But I bet you a lot of dudes, and I'm not blaming yeah. Jerry, kind of like, hey, yeah. he was incredibly funny. I can separate yeah. that from the fact he's a horrible rapist. Yes, yes. I think that's uh, 100% true that it's like, and I think one thing we did is like, we put the date of when that was because I was like, Seinfeld, <laughs> like this is a lot of more, more people were like Seinfeld than were not like Seinfeld at yes. that moment of going like, of really like, I haven't totally taken this in. I haven't processed this yet. Right. I'm still able to silo off my love of Bill Cosby comedian from my, from understanding what's going on over here. And yeah. I think that like, we live in an, a, an era now where you can't do that successfully. And if you do, you're really going to take up a toxic space, which a lot of people are happy to do. There's no question about it. We're talking to Kamal Bell. We need to talk about Cosby. It's an incredible Showtime documentary. Four parts. It's airing January 30th on Showtime. Something else that I found really jarring, perhaps I think the most upsetting story from a survivor, and it was not somebody who was sexually assaulted in a particularly vicious way. That is the woman he cast as a cop on the Cosby mm -hmm. show, 22-year-old attractive black female. Because this Eden really... Yes. This shows how this is indicting the entire system. Because why is it somebody saying, why exactly are we casting a 22-year-old, really attractive black female <laughs> as a cop? Six foot, six foot, like a <laughs> 100-pound like beat cop in New York. Yeah, yeah. Like, like already a red flag. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah. And the way she describes in detail that Cosby uses his power. Like, hey, I want to go out with you. And she is smartly saying, hey, I don't want to go out with you. Like, just, just try to play it cool. Goes to her room. By the way, and that's true, the fact she has her own dressing room. Like you have like, you have like yeah. three lines. How do you have your own yeah. dressing room? Goes yeah. there, locks the door, does an improv exercise with her, hugs her from behind, like beyond creepy watching yes. that unfold. Yeah. And that is a woman, again, who was not sexually assaulted, but that behavior alone is intolerable. And that is mm -hmm. clearly an indictment of all the people, unfortunately, that were working on the show. Yeah, and I think that, like, let's be clear about showbiz is like, I feel like there's different levels of indictment. There's the indictment, the, the harshest indictment goes for the people who are running the show because those are the people who have the most direct contact with him and have the most that they can see. I think the way showbiz works is that when they founded showbiz, nobody said, where should we put the HR department? Like that was not in the list of things they've tried to figure out when they started show business. And it's also wasn't in the list when they opened comedy clubs in basements. They weren't like, but where do we put, where are the forms that the comedians and the staff sign about what happens if something bad happens? So I think there's a part of showbiz that is like, if you are a powerful, specifically powerful man who wants to get away with some shit, and it doesn't have to be illegal, but it could be infidelity, it could be drugs, 
that Chauvin says, if you're powerful enough, we're going to ignore that. And we're going to help you get those things if you're making money for us. So I think the, and then, and then if you're not powerful in that business, if you're like the guy whose job it is to hold the cable while the thing is being recorded to make sure it doesn't get unplugged, you are trained, if not told, put your head down. What you see is none of your business if you want to keep your job. And so those people, I don't blame because I feel like they are just told, I'm trying to keep my job. I'm trying to pay my rent. There is no HR department that I've been made aware of where I can anonymously report anything. And this is also, I'm stepping into a moving stream. This is how the business was. And in the first episode, we started to talk about that, the 60s, 70s era, 60s era of show business and the Playboy Club about that, you know, you see clips from movies that you go, Sean Connery physically took a woman, spun her around, smacked her on the ass and said, man talk and pushed her away. And he hit her on the ass so hard, he rubs his arm because it hurt because he hit her on the ass. And he's the hero of the movie. That doesn't, that's not, he's not the hero now. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. Uh, my friend, Jamel Hill and former colleague at ESPN now yes. with Metal Arc as well. She was great when, when Jamel was like, like when the first shock was you heard Cosby was unfaithful, like, oh, okay. Like, hmm, that's kind of surprising. Didn't think so. But yeah, yeah. hey, like infidelity is between a man and a wife. Like, okay, whatever. Yeah. This yeah. is a completely different can of worms now. This guy's assaulting people. And that transgression, or so it's just a transformation of Cosby, which you do show so well. I spy. Like, he was a, he was a leading man. Like, he was a, yeah. a black, good-looking guy, dramatic actor. Fat Albert was huge. Those comedy albums were so influential, so well done. Mm-hmm. And then he the won Cosby eight show. Grammys in a row. Yeah, you understand? <laughs> like just, like, this guy's a brilliant comic. There's yeah. no doubt about his that. His first three times, the first three times he was nominated for an Emmy, he won an Emmy as a black, and at that era of, of America when he was yeah. the, the only black guy on TV in a in a leading role. Yeah, it's amazing. And then I remember the transformation caused me to like grumpy old man. I remember him saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. pull your pants up and stop using the N word." Yeah. And one of the funniest clips of the entire movie is when you show the Eddie Murphy clip where he talks about Bill Cosby yeah. chastising him, and Eddie yep. Murphy called Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor said, "You tell him to suck my dick." Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, who is Bill Cosby? He's, like, talking yes. smack at us. Yes. Yeah. Before we wrap, tell the story about, I love this guy, the professor, I think, at Temple, who uh, Cosby, tried to get, yeah, Cosby tried to get rid of him. Tell that story. It's so well done the way he explains it. So after the pound cake speech was what, what is what black people have come to know it as, the speech where he talked about a black person getting shot by the cops or getting shot by the cops for stealing a piece of pound cake. And Cosby says, why are they stealing the pound cake? And it's like, because they were hungry, I would guess. Uh, but Cosby's blaming the person for being shot by the police officers. And Mark Lamont Hill, who was a young professor at Temple University, wrote a piece about like calling Cosby out about that, saying he's this is respectability politics. He's not really he's not talking about the structural racism that exists. And the next, he said he then the next day or a day or two later, he got a call from his dean saying his dean had been called by Bill Cosby. Now, Cosby went to Temple, did not graduate from Temple when he was there, but later they gave him a degree, which is disputed how he got it. But, and it was so, but he was all, but he was very influential at Temple and probably gave them lots of money. And he said, Bill Cosby called me and wants to know what's going on and why you're doing this. And, and as Mark Mahill said, he basically threatening my job. And then Bill Cosby decided he was going to come back to Temple and teach teachers how to teach. And as Mark Lamont Hill says, peep, he's never taught a class a day in his life, which I think is a great, like, you know, like, it's like, you're going to teach us who went to school for teaching how to teach. And then Mark Lamont Hill, to his great credit, went up and talked to Bill Cosby at this event. And this is back in 2004, 2005, and was like, what, like, sort of like, I just want to be clear about what I was doing and why I did it, and da, da, da. And he said, and he said, Bill Cosby put his sunglasses on, which is how you know it's about to get bad. And he says, am I fucking with you? And Mark Lamont Hill was like, he's never heard, you know, you've never heard Bill Cosby drop the F-bomb in your life. And, and, and Mark Lamont goes, no, then why are you fucking with me? And then he, and then he turned away. The funny thing is, and Mark Lamont Hill, maybe we'll tell the story. There's a part two of that story. We weren't able to get in the doc 
about how Bill, he ended up being later, I don't know how long later, but later at Penn Station in Philly, he was going, they were both in Penn Station, either about to leave or go somewhere or, leave, or getting out of Penn Station. He sees Bill Cosby. He walks over to Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby looks at him and gives him the finger <laughs> from like inches away from his face. And Mark Lamont was just like. <laughs> well, one of the other great parts, too, is Mark Lamont Hill said he called him Dr. Cosby and he called him Mr. Hill. He's like, Tim, I'm an actual doctor. Like, yeah, I got, I got an actual doctor. Yeah. I got an actual PhD, but I'm Mr. Hill. Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Forgot about that part. Uh, it, it's horrifying. But the fact that Cosby's out and I love the fact you showed the part as a filmmaker, like, wait, what? I, I'm getting texts from my buddies like, yo, man, yeah. your film just got a whole lot more interesting. What was that yeah. like to know we've got a third act or a, a, a denouement, which I was not expecting? I mean, I didn't, at the time, it didn't feel like a third act. It felt like, okay, this is canceled. Shut it down. Delete the files. This story has gotten too complicated. And there have been many Cosby, I don't know how many because it's hard to keep track of them, but there have been other Cosby documentaries that have filmed completely and didn't just sat on shelves. So it felt like on some level, like maybe this is that. Some he's been involved in, some I don't know if he's been involved in. It's sort of confusing to keep track of it. And also, honestly, at that point, I was like, maybe this should go away because this has gotten way darker and way harder to do than I thought now that he's out of prison. And, you know, I have to be honest, <laughs> as recently as like, you know, a month ago, I was like, maybe I'll get a call from Showtime saying, never mind, Kamau. And I would be like, whoo, <laughs> you know, because it's like, it is really, I've been very clear that like, this is not going to go 100% well for me as much as, as much as I feel like the work is good. But ultimately, when we realized we were going to keep going, it, it was something we had to cover, but it didn't change the work we'd already done because the work was speaking to a bigger issue. Do you have any idea how Camille Cosby stayed with this guy or how Felicia Rashad is tweeting in support of him? I, I don't. I, I can't answer that. You know, I certainly don't have any idea. I think for people who worked with Bill Cosby and I have talked to some of them uh, and I don't want to say who, it is super complicated because I, I think they were closer to the person holding the cable than they were to the head of the network. So when they got those jobs, they were not, none of those people were like super famous, super well-known people. And so they probably saw him through one specific aspect that, that, that other people were not seeing him through. And they were more, I, I believe, especially the younger pe the kids were much closer to like, I'm just here to, I, I, I'm just, this is what apparently what show business is. And at the time, I think a lot of it, as we said earlier, looked like infidelity from afar. And if you're gonna be offended by infidelity in show business, you should probably not be in show business. But I think it was it covered up a lot of other sins. Yeah, that's why I like the comedian who was the warm up on Cosby. He was like, "Hey, he's trying to get some ass. Like, what do you think I'm trying to do? Like, all right, let's like." Let's it's just funny you bring that line up because there was debate around that line if we should leave that line in. I was like, "That's a real thing people say." <laughs> like, I know it's not the thing you normally hear in docs like this, but that's a real thing people say, and I want people to watch this and know we're talking to real people who say real things. It is absolutely honest. And I love Dougie Dog. He was like, "Listen, man, I love." I mean, Bill Dougie Dog needs. There's so many people in this film. I feel like. Now that you see, whatever you think of this film, there's more to get from this person. Dougie yeah. Doug needs to have a talk show. We, that was one of those incredible yeah. conversations I've ever had. It was very, very candid. The entire documentary is absolutely must-see. It's revelatory, it's profound, and huge props to W. Kamal Bell. We need to talk about Cosby. Thank you. January 30th on Showtime. Thanks so much, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, great stuff there from Kamal Bell. Once again, check out, we need to talk about Cosby on Showtime. All right, time for our new movies here. First up, Flea, which tells the extraordinary true story of a man, Amin, not Amin el Hassan, <laughs> on the verge of marriage, which compels him to reveal his hidden past for the first time. It's directed by Jonas Pohor Rasmussen, which sounds like one of the names I'll be saying for the next 17 days on Peacock. <laughs> it's also written by Amin Nawabi and Jonas Pohor Rasmussen. Check him out on the ski jump. Um, I'll be brief here on this one, okay? Flea My Car... It's really inventive. And when you watch a lot of movies, what you want is something original, original something yep. that's different. Right? That's the biggest thing. It's really go, the biggest thing, I'd say. Give me something that feels fresh. Yes. So when I say to myself, all right, this is a 90-minute documentary, which is animated, and it's a foreign film. Like, all right, I've never really seen that before. Like, this has given me a whole lot of different things, and I can see why it's gotten such rave reviews. Adam Graham of Detroit News, a triumph, not only of the film variety, but a human one as well. Jan Yamoto of Los Angeles Times, an intimate portrait of the lasting traumas of displacement and one of the most humane films of the year. And Marianne Johansson, a flick philosopher, impossibly heartbreakingly poignant, rooted in tough emotion and hard realities. A deeply humane movie that makes an unspoken, effortless plea for compassion for refugees' distress and desperation. That's what it's about. It's about a guy named Amin who's growing up in Afghanistan, unfortunately because of, you know, all the political issues they're having there, Russia's invasion, etc. He's displaced him and his family. They go to Russia. From Russia, it's, you know, a horrible environment there, communism, etc. And so they're trying to find their home. And, and that's why it really is about displacement. You know, we're all, we're all refugees on some level, right? We all come from somewhere. And for him, he's trying to find his place. Eventually, it winds up in Denmark uh, and is true to himself, ends up finding the love of his life, who's another man, and he has to shield his, uh, his sexuality the entire time while he's in Afghanistan and in Russia, homosexuality not allowed. So it, it's amazing because this is a guy whose his, his whole life is guarded, right? Like he's, he's basically on the run most of his life. He can never really reveal himself, which is why the movie is animated, because he's scared of people seeing his true identity. So he was like, apparently told the documentary, listen, I want to tell the story about refugees and displacement and the poverty we go through and the fact that I'm gay and I couldn't disclose that, but not comfortably doing it on camera. So that's why it's actually an animated film, which is a fascinating part of itself. Now let's make this a little bit entertaining. We got the serious part of the way. I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. Here's the better question. When they're in the Soviet Union, they're trying to figure out a way to, to flee, to get to a country which is safer, which is Europe. And so they got these black market smugglers, which by the way, the, guy, the way they describe black market people, like what kind of life is this? Do you grow up to go, all right, I'm gonna be somebody who's gonna escort people. I'm not a drug mule, but I'm, if you give me $100,000, I will get you to another country. I, I can do fake passports, all that kind of stuff. So he talks about the smugglers, how they're just the worst type of people. Like you, you see kids and women and dying, you give me money and I'll help you, otherwise you're gonna die. So the question is this to Chris Cody. 
at one point he tells a story of, he says, being in like a truck packed full of sardines, people trying to escape Russia and trying to get to where they had to go. How long could you go without going to the bathroom? <laughs> like, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, are you kidding? Like, he said it was days on end. I'm like, I, I, we're I not, have a bowel he, movement. They had water. He had water. So we're not worried about the hydration. We're just talking about peeing. Um, oh my How long could you go? Like, I can't even go listen, three hours. Be, I can't even go three you hours. You should be <laughs> urinating every hour. I think you and I could probably go four or five. But I mean, imagine days on end, you're in another, I get it. This is extraordinary circumstances. Chris Cody is fleeing. You're a refugee. You're trying to get somewhere safe. How long could you hold it? For one and for two. You pee every hour. You're supposed to. I don't. You're, but supposed, you're supposed to, to pee I, every hour. I feel like I pee like four times a day. No, God, no, no. I, I pee more than that. I'm at least eight to ten. I got to keep but track. You should be doing it like, How many times do you yeah. pee a day? That's what we're going to call this episode. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I love it already. But it was one of the thoughts that popped in my head. I'm like, wow, this is a very harrowing documentary. I couldn't imagine not going to the bathroom. Like, imagine just knocking on the guy. Hey, are we going to, we taking a pit stop here? Like, We're fleeing for our lives. I know, but I'm just curious. I just, hey, two minutes. I just need to, I drank way too much of that chocolate Yahoo at the, at the pit stop. I'm sorry, guys. My bad. You got to just let it Flee. flow, though. I feel like I would just go. Yeah, I, I was about to say, you know what? You're in a situation like that. You're probably just peeing yeah. yourself. Let's be honest. <laughs> Next one up, Drive My Car. This is very rare that a foreign film wins best picture. That's from Society of Film Critics. So the New York Film Critics, they are their own association. They vote their best picture, right? And it's Drive My Car. So it's not just best international feature film slash foreign film. That's their best movie of the year. The LA Film Critics did the same thing as well. So think about all these other movies, all right? There's, there's West Side Story, there's Belfast, there's Power of the Dog. They're going, no, our best picture of the year is a nearly three-hour Japanese film. Now, the LA Film Critics did this before. They did it with Parasite, which ended up winning the best picture. Good movie. And now Drive My Car has a lot of buzz around it. So I'm very, very excited to see it. I'm like, all right, here we go. It's nearly three hours. What is it about? The story is about a man who is a theater actor slash director. He's apparently in love with his wife, then catches his wife cheating on him. An accident happens, and then the rest of the story is about his own unraveling. That is as much as I would like to say. Drive My Car from Estelle Tang of BuzzFeed News shows people devastated by loss, allowing time to ripen those wounds and distort their understanding of love and purpose. Chris Hewitt of Minneapolis Star Tribune. Drive My Car viewers need to be patient, but that patience is rewarded. I'm glad Chris mentioned the issue of patience. Cody, this film is two hours and 55 when minutes. When does it, it get good? Three when, does it, like, when, do you, when do you say to yourself for the first time, I'm enjoying this? That first hour, <laughs> I was ready to drive my car off the cliff. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's called Drive My Car, because the first hour. That's even more unlikable. I drive a Porsche. So, okay, this Look at you. is driving his Porsche. So, the fact that I'm willing to drive my Porsche Panamera, that shows you how bored I was. In the second hour, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I, I, I'm like, I can see why the critics like it, okay? It's about this guy and sorrow and suffering and guilt. But, gee, can we get a car crash here? Like, can we get some, like, guns? Can we get some, like, you know, Matrix-type stuff? Let's pick this thing up. The last hour... Is fantastic. Really? The last hour of Drive My Car is a four Maple Leaf movie. The first two hours are a one Maple Leaf wow. movie. Wow. Therefore, I'm giving the very unpopular two Maple Leaf review to Drive My Car. And I know critics are losing their mind. It's it's the heavy so it's not it's just going the, to win. So it's not just the first hour, though. It's the first two hours. First two hours. Wow. My man. Because here's what, by the way, here's what it's called. But you stuck with it. I felt like you kind of felt like something good was coming. Because I'm not that you're one to stop watching a movie, but. Yeah, I'll never give up. Yeah. I'll never give okay. up. It's like a marathon. I'll just keep going. <laughs> but at one point, I mean, I kept thinking of this too. The title, Drive My Car, what do I think of? The Beatles. Baby, you can drive yep. my car. I'm like, all I kept thinking of, I'm like, that's a pretty upbeat title, considering it's not really an upbeat movie. And if you're wondering why that is the title, 
after the unraveling of this human being, he's now a director. He's directing Chekhov, which, trust me, I get the parallels. It's a Chekhov play. It's about his life, yada, yada, yada. The theater company where he works at says, you have to have a driver. This also dovetails back to my job coming up with Peacock. <laughs> wow, full because circle. Because they say the, the company doesn't want you to drive yourself. He's like, I can drive. I love to drive. I'm good. They're like, no, no. Here's a younger woman. She is your driver. And a little bit of like sexism. He's like, I don't need some broad driving me around. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, she can do it. So the reason why it's called Drive My Car is it's about a woman driving a guy to his job as a theater director. And of course, he's got baggage from the past. She has issues. They make a connection. The last hour, again, is amazing. Once you get to the payoff of what these guys are dealing with, and I can understand why, again, it's about very, very heavy themes. But I couldn't imagine, like you watching this, Cody, you'd be enraged. You'd be like, are you kidding? Bro? You're making me watch this? I have to admit, I'm very intrigued by this final hour. <laughs> But to answer your question, there's no shot I'm sitting through two hours of boringness no. just to get to, like, no. I might, I'm the, be upset. I'm the type, especially because you kind of set it up for me. Yeah. I need to just know when the thing happens that you didn't tell us about. Can I just fast forward to yeah. there? I feel like based off your setup, I get it. He's a theater yes. director. What part in the movie? I need to know when that happens. Just I'll start there. Yeah. <laughs> and you need to see the scene where she's cheating on him because that's, that's pretty good stuff. Okay. Too. He, 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 he's going to the airport. He goes to the airport. Flight's canceled. Goes back home, uh, doesn't tell his lady, opens the door. Oof. Making the beast with two Thank backs. Thank you for the sound even, effects. Thank you for that. And she doesn't <laughs> even notice that he notices. That's the best part. He walks in. She keeps going. Eyes are closed. Uh, she's facing the other way. He's just like, oh, okay, I just want to, hey, my flight got, I'm going to, I'm just going to get Oh, he it. just leaves? Oh, I'm not leaving. Just leaves. I'm not leaving. <laughs> yeah. Drive my car. Fun movie. Maybe you can All right. Drive those are your new car. movies. How about some old movies? I'm going to go really quick on Heaven Can Wait. Warren Beatty, he directed it. He starred in it. I think he produced it, co-wrote it. Like, it's all about Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty. We're all about football right now. I mean, listen, we've had six insanely good. Moonlight won Best Picture! I was like, Warren Beatty, who many people exemplify with that moment, which I, of course, am connected to. (laughs) I'm like, let me just watch a football movie. I just, I can't get enough football right now. So... Heaven Can Wait, i got to be honest with you, wasn't very good. Heaven Can Wait, Heaven Can Keep Waiting, because uh, this wasn't worth it. I had never seen this film, 1970, again, rewarded by the critics. It's about a guy, what do you think? He's a football player, he dies, he goes to heaven, he goes, oh, I want to go back to life, so he goes back to another person's life, and i got to be honest with you, I thought it was a ludicrous movie. It was, <laughs> it was ridiculous. ridiculous. His hair is awful, it gets horrible hair on Warren Bay. This is 1978 hair. Uh, I did like the supporting cast. I love James Mason. You know, me and Rogowski, big James Mason fans. I texted Rags immediately. He's like, oh my God, James Mason. Like, and he wrote back, apparently heaven couldn't wait. <laughs> oh God, Jesus. It's terrible. Classic Rags. It's terrible. And that is classic Rags. And then um, Jack Warden's in it. I love Jack Warden. He was in The Verdict, which again, me and Rags love that movie. So I like the supporting actors. But as far as the movie itself, I mean, listen, Nicholas Wapshot nails it of the times. Beatty, well, maybe he doesn't nail it. Beatty can carry out this sort of whimsy by playing it straight and keeping the ludicrous premise credible. You know, it's ludicrous. <laughs> but the film is dogged by the nagging vision of what might have been. Yeah, I, I don't really understand why this movie <laughs> is loved by so many people. So Heaven Can Wait, uh, Heaven Is Still Waiting. I'll give it whatever. One may believe. I do really want to talk about our last film, though. No Country for Old Men. Great film. Tom Rinaldi's favorite movie. I met Rinaldi one time years ago, college football. He comes up and he just goes, what film? He goes, my favorite film. I can't do Rinaldi voice, but what film begins with 12 different scenes of landscape. And I'm like, I don't know, like, what kind of question is that? Like, for, who do you think's gonna win? Georgia or Alabama? Like, what are you asking me these questions? Like, who talks to someone like that, first of all? Just like, hey, are you a fan of the Coen Brothers? And then we can go from there. So I was like, I have no idea. No Country for Old Men. I'm like, all right, cool, it's a good movie. He's like, no, it's my favorite film. I'm like, all right, great, congratulations. Like, dude, it's an awesome movie. Got it. Go make someone cry. You're that guy now. People want to tell you their favorite film. You gotta just take it. You gotta sit there and listen. Right. 
I do, I do. You're exactly right. I'm like, I had no interest in the conversation beyond, hey, Tom, how are you? And he just kept going. Like, All right, well, Rinaldi's going to tell me. Dave Fleming also loves No Country for Old Men. So it's a hell of a movie. I'm not, I'm, I've never seen it, though. I'm not going to lie. I've never seen it. When you first like sent me the movie and I was like, let me do the thing for it to send Adnan in info on it, I thought, yeah. I was thinking in my head, my country, we're out. What's the George Clooney movie? Brother, we're out That's. I don't know why. That's the movie I thought I was about to start researching. And then I realized, oh, yeah. shit, Tommy Lee Jones is in this. So, yeah, that's my preparation for today's episode. Yeah, that's okay. I'm not crazy about uh, that one. So I'm glad we did not do that, George Clooney. A uh, Coen Brothers film, I'm not crazy about. I love No Country for Old Men, though. As I said off the top, uh, an Academy Award winner. It was finally the moment where the Coen Brothers got all the adulation that they deserve from the Academy. For many years, they made these independent films that are kind of obscure, kind of quirky, definitely throwbacks to old films, films that are generally well-reviewed. Obviously, Fargo won for a screenplay and for actress. And then there's films that weren't well-reviewed, like The Hudsucker Proxy. There's films that people love, like Raising Arizona, very funny, very zany. But No Country for Old Men, everyone goes, you know what? These guys have had their moment. Best picture, best director, supporting actor Javier Bardem, and it's amazing. The one thing I don't like about it is it's not as much like their other films in that it doesn't have a lot of humor in it. Normally they have really serious themes, but there'll be humor, and there's whimsical, and it's ironic and silly at times. No Country for Old Men, though, is very straightforward. It is lean and mean. It is a sparse Western, and it's all about one horrible bad guy played by Javier Bardem. Speaking of her horrible hair, when he won the Academy Award, he did say, the Coen brothers maybe wear this ridiculous haircut, but he is a guy who goes around the cattle prod that is how he kills people and this story is all about fate and chance and it's about the goal to catch Javier Bardem and the issues involving that because he's a guy who feels like the Terminator I mean he's he's a realistic killer who just kills for no apparent reason at one point he goes in to meet a guy a little cowpoke and says all right call it meaning with a coin speaking of coin flips when it comes to football this guy it's life or death and he says call it and if you don't answer the call the right way he will kill you with a cattle prod like he's just a freaking insane Jesus. person then you've got Josh Brolin, who's ripped off a bunch of money. So he's on the run. And Anton Chigurh, Bardem's character, tries to chase him down. And then you have Tommy Lee Jones, who's just got that craggy face. Like, he looks like he's just born from the wild, wild west. And he, of course, is the sheriff trying to catch both of these guys. So those are the three principal characters. I did mention there wasn't much humor. Here's a couple of them, though. There's one scene after someone gets murdered, and Josh Brolin calls. Javier Bardem answers it. And he says, is Carson Wells there? And Bardem takes one look at the carcass and then says, not in the sense you mean. Which is a great line. Is Chris Cody there? Not in the sense you mean. He's here, but I just murdered him. He also, later on, they talk about fate. Towards the end, one of the characters is a minor character. Says to Tommy Lee Jones, you can't stop what's coming. It ain't all on you. That's vanity. Which is rare for the Coen brothers, but that to me is almost like a religious statement. Like, whatever happens in life, man, it's up to God. There's only so much you can do. So if you think you can change things in this whole argument of fate versus free will, you and I can change our lives. Actually, no, you can't. If you're going to get murdered by the guy with a cattle prod, that's going to happen. If, if things are going to work out well for you, they're going to work out for it. If they don't, that's just life. But it's a great line. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all on you. That's vanity. And now we get to the humorous part, which I know Chris is going to love. At one point, Brolin is in the hospital. He, I don't need to get into the details, but he's, he's in pretty rough shape. Yeah. He wakes up, and it's Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, I love Woody Harrelson. Who doesn't love Woody yeah. Harrelson? Supporting character. And Woody knows this guy, Josh Brolin, has all the money. So he's asking him, you know, what happened to the money? Where are you? And he goes, listen, I know the guy who's after you. And Brolin doesn't know his name, but he goes, no, I know who he is. And he's like, no, you don't know. His name is Anton Chigurh. This guy's like the boogeyman. Yeah. Like, forget it. Good luck. And he goes, what happened to the money? And Brolin says, I had to rewind this twice. Go, this can't be true. He says... I spent a million and a half on whores and whiskey. The rest is just gone. <laughs> to repeat, spent a million and a half on whores and whiskey. The rest is just gone. I did the math on this. They're in West Texas. A hooker, I mean, a whore at that era. How much are we talking? 100 bucks for the hour? I don't know. <laughs> 150? Okay. 
I'm going to say it's 100 <laughs> okay. So let's suppose he's generous and gives her a $100 what tip. What era is this? Bucks. <laughs> yeah, this is, that's a good question, actually. I feel like it's a Western, so it feels from the past, but I don't think it's that much further from what it was. Okay. So the movie came out in 2007. Okay. So let's just say 2007 era. Okay. West Texas prostitutes. Then. Okay. 100 bucks. Right? This isn't New York City. It's not Miami. Where you are, I've been thinking it's 300 bucks. You're getting some more upscale. But West Texas? 100 bucks. $100 tip. Let's suppose he's really... This guy's not the tip to give a $100 tip. But let's just say he is. Okay, sure. That's $200. Yeah. Okay? Three times a day. Yeah. That's 600 bucks. I love this math. Okay? Times, times... Like this, the math of this just doesn't add up. I love how we didn't start with the whiskey. We were like, we know how much whiskey probably is. <laughs> $4,200 on horrors, that's per week. And I believe, I'm going to check this. I believe he has the money for six weeks. So, we're like, what is this guy? Will Chamberlain? 20,000 women? A million and a half on horse and whiskey. No, no, you spent at least maybe 25 grand on horrors. Tops. It might have tops. just been a lot of whiskey. <laughs> this Canadian Royal Whiskey is apparently the greatest whiskey. A million dollars on whiskey. That's one of the great mysteries ever of this movie. Uh, no country for the brilliant film. That's great. But if I ever meet the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, I'm going to say, I just have one thought. When Josh Bowen says spent a million and a half on horse and whiskey. Did you guys do the math on that or did you guys just like come up with a ridiculous number? Uh, <laughs> Does, doesn't is, make any sense. is Tommy Lee Jones the good guy in this movie? He is the good Tommy guy. Lee and the Jones movie looks like a bad guy, but always plays a good guy. Is he a bad guy in any movie? I'm so glad you brought this up. Ben Lyons had over to the house maybe about a month ago. My wife, of course, loves movies, loves all this stuff. And Ben, for years, has worked for E! News. He's interviewed every celebrity. Yeah. So we're asking, you know, who's the nicest person, who's the worst person? And I hope he doesn't mind me disclosing this, but I was like, who, who's a tough one? Tommy Lee Jones. <laughs> he was like, he goes, I've interviewed Tommy Lee Jones, and he just like, mm, tough. And I go, just like, quiet? And he goes, no, he challenges you. Like, if you ask a question, he'll come back at you. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, like De Niro is famously quiet, was great on Cinephile. But generally, if you ask him, how was the movie? Great. Yeah. What was it like working with him? Awesome. Yeah. Like, he's not being a jerk. He just doesn't have a lot to say. Yeah. Because Tommy the Jones could say more. He's purposely being a dick. Like, he just kind of that's just interesting. digs at you a little bit. I mean, that's honestly not... the least surprising thing I've heard this whole episode, by the way. <laughs> like, that is, it fits. Like, if you just look at somebody and you're like, who could be yeah. a little tough? That fits. But it's just like, <laughs> but that's what I mean. That's the way he looks. So I would think yeah. that that's a guy that would have had a career as a villain. But it's like Men in yeah. Black, he's a good guy. Uh, mm -hmm. Few Good Men, isn't he in that movie? See, I'm trying to like... Uh, no, The Fugitive, he the is... The Fugitive. You're right, though. He's he's chasing Harrison Ford. That's what I mean. So he is a cop who should be the good guy. That's what, right. It's just like, it's just he seems like a guy that could have made a career as a villain, but seems to always play the cop. Interesting. That's an inter that's an interesting uh, look at me. observation. I just always when I look at him, I just his like his it's so many scars and yeah. craggly face. It's just his his lack of moisturizer. He was like, forget yes. it. I'm not going to do it. Yes. Like at 35, someone told him, "Have you thought about Nivea cream?" He's like, "What? Like I'm not going to do that." I'm like, okay, well, this is my face, and I'm just going to enjoy it. Like <laughs> man, craggly face. I love the way the movie ends. By the way, there's two dreams that Tommy Jones tells, and they're awesome. Like it's so well done. I mean, I again. I feel bad because Cody's never seen it, but 15 good, years. It's spoiler good. alert, but it's great. He, he tells us two dreams. I think it's a great way to end the movie. Virtually no score in the film. Carter Burwell does the score, but it's over the end credits. Uh, but, but gorgeously shot by Joel Cormier. The guy's such a great director. I talked to Tragedy Macbeth recently. The shot composition, the lighting, etc. No Control Men. It looks beautiful. Those are heavy themes. It's a great, great film. If you haven't seen it, go check out No Country for Old Men. My endorsement, not Tom Rinaldi's, should be enough <laughs> to make you watch it. Um, thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. One last bit of business before we go. This has nothing to do with movies, but I just love this book by Chris Herring. It's called Blood in the Garden. Oh, and we talked to the we history of the 1990s New York Knicks. So I buy the book because Stanzik posted it on his like, guy, Jim, like, oh my God, I can't wait. I read it. I was on the Levitard show this past Wednesday. We had him on. It was great. 
and I was going to text you, obviously New Yorker, Knicks fan, and then I checked your show. You guys had Chris Young yeah. on the other day. How was he? Oh, I mean, he's that the story, the Pat Riley. Like he, we were trying to pin him down. Like, where does the most interesting stories come from in this book? Because Pat Riley, Charles Oakley, oh, Anthony Mason, Riley's amazing. Like, yeah. it's just that that era. It's so rich for a book, and I have not read the book yet, but it seems really cool. Awesome read. I finished it in a week, 290 pages. We like our book reviews here on Cinephile. I'll read you a couple of quick blurbs here. Let's talk about Xavier McDaniel and how he's a tough guy. McDaniel prioritized manhood, specifically his own manhood. According to McDaniel's teammates in Seattle, he often walked around the Sonics locker room fully erect after games, hanging towels in his hardened member. <laughs> Got a couple more here for you. This is one here about Charles Oakley. In one scrimmage, he dove for a ball that was headed out of bounds, but knocked it into the crotch of assistant Jeff Nix by accident, leaving Nix in so much pain that he made arrangements to see a urologist. The ordeal was a blessing in disguise. <laughs> During the visit, the doctor found and removed an unrelated growth Nix hadn't been aware of. It's always made me grateful that Oak hustled the way he did. He may have saved my life. And one more here for you. I got one, too, if we're going to have an excerpt off. I got one that I showed sure. Dan. John Starks at one, one time. Oh, here we go. After a particularly intense regular season game with Indiana in 1995, Starks bizarrely told the beat reporter, I'm going to cut <laughs> Reggie Miller's dick Damn off it, and make him eat it. <laughs> I'm going to cut Reggie Miller's dick off and make him eat it. That is 290 an pages. I just gave you three excerpts. There's a reason to go buy Blood in the Garden. If somebody ever comes up to me and tells me they're going to cut my dick off and make me eat it, I'm running away in the opposite direction. I don't care if we're just tough talk. All right? That is just every other way. I'd rather go. That is not the way I want to go. I cannot have that as my legacy. <laughs> the title of this podcast is going to be, I cannot have that as my legacy. <laughs> Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. Thanks to W. Cabal Bell. I'm beginning my new gig on Peacock. I'm going to be honest. I don't know how many movies I'm going to see. I'm going to try. I'll do my best. Maybe in the drive to Stanford with my driver. I'll be watching yes. on my phone. But I will tell you next week, Oscar nominations are coming up February 8th. So Cinephile is a place to be. I will give all my reaction to the Oscar nomination, best nomination, worst nomination, what's driving me crazy. Drive my car. Thanks for checking out Cinephile. I'll see you at the movies. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.